There once was a wealthy, successful family who lived in Chicago. The husband was a prominent lawyer, a senior partner in a large, thriving law firm. The wife was a homemaker taking care of five beautiful children. They were also prominent supporters and close friends with a very well-known evangelist and sought to do the Lord's work at every given opportunity. The family, however, faced several tragedies in their life. For example, their only son died with a severe fever at the age of four years old. They had invested in real estate in a major growing city before an enormous land fire destroyed most of the sizable investment. Two years later, Horatio Spafford decided his family should take a holiday somewhere in Europe and, there in the, and, uh, and chose England, knowing that their dear friend D.L. Moody would be preaching there this fall. He was delayed because of business, so he sent his family ahead, his wife and his four children. Daughters 11-year-old Anna, 9-year-old Margaret Lee, 5-year-old Elizabeth, and 2-year-old Tanetta. On November 22, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic on a steamship, their ship was struck by an iron sailing vessel. And in 20 horrible minutes, their ship sank and 226 people lost their lives, including all four of the Spafford's children. Horatio's wife, Anna Spafford, survived the tragedy by clinging on to a piece of ship wreckage. Upon arriving to England, she sent a telegram to Spafford saying simply, saved alone. Grieving and mourning the painful death of all of their children, Spafford boarded the next ship for Europe, and he crossed the Atlantic and over the watery graves of his four daughters, words of consolation formed in his heart. And he kept repeating over and over, even so, it is well with my soul. This morning, our text is from Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 29. If you would stand with me this morning for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes 7, 15 through 29. The Bible says this. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. There is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to a man more than ten rulers of a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. Do not take heart to all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom, and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been afar off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and search out and seek wisdom in the scheme of things and know the wickedness and folly and foolishness that is madness, and I find something more bitter than death. A woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I have found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. 
One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman all these I have not found. See, all this I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Go ahead and be seated. This morning, text entitled Wisdom in Balance, and Solomon definitely speaks to wisdom and shows us a balanced way of living. Solomon has reminded us that the way to victory is to fear the Lord and keep Him in the forefront of your life. This chapter 7 in Ecclesiastes is about wisdom, as you can well tell from the songs and well tell from the text thus far. Wisdom is not a knowledge of accumulated facts, but the inner strength that comes from a God-entrusted life. Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He says, Wisdom is a God-given ability to see life with rare objectivity and handle life with rare stability. Scripture shows us a little bit further. Proverbs 9 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. First Corinthians sheds a little bit more light and says this, and we read the text this morning, And because of Him, God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So it seems that the only, so, the only uh, solace and the only comfort and the only course Solomon can recommend for this life is to fear God. And why not? Why not fear God? He has the whole world in his hands. He's got the winds and the waves in his hands. He's got the tiny little baby in his hands. I had to sing that this morning. Um, he also has you and me in his hands. And it's easy for sometimes for, for us to forget that. Um, In the midst of the heat of the time, we forget that. Uh, He's got your future in his hands. He has your circumstances in his hands. He's got your friends. And yes, he's even got your enemies in his hands. What a great comfort it is to know that our God has us in his hands. This basic truth helps put together something for us, helps us address life with perspective, and it stabilizes our life. Sometimes the stress of life can put so much pressure and so much stress on us. There are times when we find it really hard to believe that our circumstances are really in God's hands. There are times we need to remember, as Isaiah 49 says, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Because I have engraved you in the palms of my hands, your walls are continually before me. There's a saying that most of you know, I know this like the back of my hand. And this is really what God is saying. God is saying, I know you like the palm of my hand. That includes your experiences, your responses, your reactions, what we call calamities, your dead ends, your impossible situations, he has them all in, our hand, in his hands. Yesterday's failures, today's challenges, and tomorrow's surprises, not one of them are a surprise to him. My ways are as familiar to his, or excuse me, my ways are as familiar to him as the palm of my hand are to me. So this morning, let's take a an analysis of wisdom from three different angles this morning. First of all, our perspective from wisdom, verses 15 through 18. Wisdom is God's insight, as we've already said. 
It provides us with objectivity and stability. It is the ability to live above human normalcy and human opinion. It is is the ability to live above the horizontal perspective to the vertical perspective. With God's wisdom, we can dip into an unexpected valley and also soar to the pinnacle of success. And we can cope with either extreme, Solomon says. Gives us the proper balance. From this perspective, a proper balance. Verse 15 says, In my vain, and really he's saying brief, in my brief life, I have seen everything. And if anybody had seen everything, I believe it was Solomon. Uh, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life by evil doing. And it much resembles Psalm 73. Behold, these are the wicked always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning, proclaiming that I have been good, I have been righteous, but what do I profit? Nothing. Pain. It speaks to the paradox of life, and we ask the same questions today. Seemingly good people die young, and the wicked seem to prosper and live long and escape all punishment. If obedience to God's law is all in vain, then why bother? Why don't we give up? And that's the flip side of this passage. Verses 16 and 17. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Solomon points out the limitations of virtue as well as vice. Many think that Solomon is talking about just moderation. Don't be too good. Don't sin too much. Keep it in the middle. Keep it in the middle of the road. Um, The verbs in this text carry the idea of a, a reflexive action. And for those English teachers out there who know what I'm talking about, the subject and the object are the same person. It is the action concerning oneself. Don't you claim to be righteous, making yourself and others believe a lie. Don't you claim to be overly wicked. Don't revel in that. Essentially, Solomon is trying to say here, don't think you can prolong your life by attempting to be super righteous or super wise. Nor should you think that because righteousness cannot guarantee a long life, you cannot throw caution to the wind and become very wicked and choosing to do sinful things. Don't act like you have it all figured out and that you have uh, uh, the market cornered, essentially, in how to live life. And this idea of self-righteousness lends to, um, or the attitude that that I I know it all. Have you ever met someone who just knows it all? No matter what you say, what experience you've had, they have a better story and they don't mind telling you, okay? Um, This idea of self-righteousness. But but isn't that not pride? Is that not sin? Pride is sin. Proverbs 3, 7 says this, Be not wise in your own eyes, or be not wise according to your own standards. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This is a picture of the overzealous individual out to impress others. It points to self as the cause and creator of righteousness instead of God. A life obsessed with righteousness blinds a person to his own sinfulness and need of a savior. Think about that for just a second. I'll say it again. A life obsessed with righteousness blinds a person to his own sinfulness and need For a savior, 
claiming to be so good, you even believe it yourself. Adversely to this, chosen, or choosing wickedness is warned against as well. And it's not the idea of just being, don't sin just a little bit or don't sin just too much. Um, Solomon's warning is not an admonition to not sin too much, but rather to choose not to choose sin deliberately because it will lead most certainly to an early death and to trouble. Solomon is attempting to show us that there are no privileges and no privilege claims on a life of either side of wisdom or foolishness or either justice or wickedness. Neither of them allow a person to be safe and secure in that sense. He is very sarcastic in his expression of this, of course. An excess of either profits nothing. Profits nothing. The truth, I guess we could see in this passage, true godly wisdom guards you from both of these extremes. And that's why he pits one against the other. They guard you from both extremes. The extreme of self-righteousness and the extreme of willful sinful, willful sinning. So our perspective not only gives us the proper balance of that, but it also brings good benefit. Verse 18 says, It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out of both of them. The of this, the that you should take hold of this, Solomon says true wisdom can come from, or comes from the fear of God. And it is the fear of God that is the best protection against either absurdity on either side. We should take hold of righteousness as the Bible proclaims, most certainly, but not withdraw from the wisdom of a balanced life. Balance is loving Jesus supremely, but not losing touch with humanity. An old saying is this. I'm doing a lot of old sayings today. You're so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. And that's, I think that's where we get that idea from. So don't check out of reality. We are to fear God, but we are not to lose perspective. The story of Job, I think, illustrates this the best. And if I can paint this, if you will allow me this morning to paint this picture for you, um, the example of the people who think they, they have it figured out in the self-righteousness type life. Um, if you obey all the rules, you'll be safe. Okay? Uh, you see in scene one of Job, Satan's working over God's man. He takes everything from him, uh, his family, his goods, his possessions, puts him in the lowest, lowest of valleys. Job responds to those things. And also you see three friends come and attend Job. And they're not so great friends, are they? Uh, three Job's friends, and they are considered wise, the Bible says, righteous friends. So let's look in Job 2. And we pick up the scene here. Now when Job's three friends heard all this evil that had come upon him, and they came each from their own place, Elphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. Sounds like good friends. Scene 4, we pick up with Elphaz. In Job 4, remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity, so trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger are they consumed. What is he saying? He's saying if, you, if, if, if he believes that the innocent do not suffer trouble. Let's look at Bildad. Continue with the three friends. Job 8, he says, if you are pure and upright, surely then 
He will, God, will arouse himself for you and restore your rightful habitation. If you do good, if you've done good, God will give it all back to you and he will keep you in this uplifted place. Let's look at Zophar. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far from thee and let not injustice dwell in your tents. Job 11. How would you like friends like that? Not very good comforters. Job answers, and I think one of the most satirical passages, Job answers in Job 16. Then Job answered and said, I have heard many such things. Many people have told me this. Miserable, miserable comforters are all of you. So Job's friends believed that if you obey the rules and show yourself as righteous and as godly as possible, then you will be safe and secure when no such thing is ever guaranteed in Scripture. In fact, Solomon cuts through this unbiblical notion by reminding us that no one is exempt from destructive use of the tongue. All of us are prone to say things rashly, to gossip, to heap scorn upon others. Let's check out and look at this morning our perspective, uh, not only from our perspective of wisdom, but our power from wisdom this morning. 19 through 22. Solomon throughout his writings and even all through Proverbs alludes to this and says that wisdom is better than might, better than strength. Wisdom is better than might. Ecclesiastes 9 says wisdom is better than the weapons of war. So all the weapons we accumulate in our government, tanks and guns, wisdom is better than all these, Solomon says. It gives us might, verse 19. Wisdom gives us strength to the wise man more than ten rulers of a city. The wise person fears the Lord and therefore does not fear anything or anyone else. He walks with God and is prepared to face the challenges of life, including wars. And we have to stop and think for a second. We live in a free country and a a wonderful blessing to live here, and we are at war. But what war might he be talking about? Maybe not the physical war, but the spiritual war that we face every day. Every day. The Christian life isn't a playground, but it's a battleground where spiritual warfare is going on all around us all the time. So not only this, showing the might, but guess what wisdom does for us as well. Verse 20, wisdom reveals our sin. Surely there is not one righteous man on the earth who does no good or who does good and never sins. God's wisdom exposes us for who we really are. It exposes the one who is reliant on doing things correctly in order to receive God's favor, as well as the one who is choosing to do evil willfully. It exposes both extremes. God's wisdom exposes our true nature. God's magnifying glass searches our hearts and knows exactly who we are. And it's a wisdom, or God's wisdom is a reminder to us that we can't do it alone. We must try and, uh, or we must trust and rely on the completed work of God through Christ. Our very nature demands that we require something outside of ourselves to make us righteous. We cannot make ourselves righteous. Amen? Amen. I didn't ask you for an amen earlier, so I, I primed your pump, I guess. But our very nature demands that we require something outside of ourselves to make us righteous. We were born sinners. We didn't just choose to sin after we were born. We, we were born sinners. Um, we didn't just be- become sinners. Therefore, our attempts at righteousness fail miserably. 
Only God can make us righteous, and he does that through Christ, through Christ his Son. So it does give us might, sure. Verse 20, it does reveal our sin. But what about 21 and 22? I think it penetrates deep to the heart of the issue. Wisdom reveals our heart. Do not take to heart all the things that people say. This is probably the wisest of all sayings in Scripture. Do not take heart to all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. When admirers lavish praise upon you, you have to use wisdom as a discernment tool here to keep yourself balanced. But also, when the, when the unwarranted criticism comes, the servant in this verse that he's talking about represents someone that we know well. So he's saying, lest you hear your close friend, lest you hear your boss, lest you hear your neighbor talking about you or cursing you. And the reason Solomon gives this advice, advice is clear. Sin is universal. You're looking at the other person talking about you, but don't you yourself talk about others? Sin is universal. It affects us. It affects us all. Verse 22, your heart knows, it says. The fact is, my own heart knows worse things about me than anyone will ever know. That should create in us an, a generous spirit of forgiveness, knowing that we harbor sin in our heart that is much greater than what others do to us. We ought to be more humble and therefore accurate in our own self-assessment. G.K. Chesterton said this when asked, what is wrong with the world? He looks at him and simply and says, I am. I am. Charles Spurgeon said this as well. Success exposes a man to the pressures of people and thus tempts him to hold on to his gains by means of fleshly methods and practices and to let himself be ruled wholly by dictatorial demands of incessant expansion. Success can go to my head and, and will unless I remember that it is God who accomplishes the work, that he can continue to do so without my help and that he will be able to make out with other means, whenever he wants me to be cut out or wants to cut me out. That's a strong statement. This morning, we have looked at perspective, our perspective from wisdom and our power from wisdom. But what about our perception of the same? What about our perception of wisdom? Verses 23 and 24, all I have tested with wisdom. And he says what? I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been afar off and deep, very deep, who can find it out? So Solomon takes a minute and he reflects on the things he's mentioned thus far. Even though he has seen everything, even though wisdom gives you more strength than ten rulers of a city, Solomon says he's tested all this and he said, I will be wise. He determined to grasp the answer of the paradox of the good dying and the evil prospering, by, but human wisdom has its limits. It was far from him, he said. It was beyond my grasp. Besides, who can know it? Who can find out why if he can't? The wisest man who lived. Isaiah 55 sheds light to this. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Solomon realizes that it's beyond our understanding why God allows things to happen the way they do. And you know what? 
It really should be us too in that position. Continuing verses 25 and 26. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness and folly and foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. And Solomon takes a second here and recounts the temptation to wickedness and how easily it can ensnare you. And he likens it unto this. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He uh, he who pleases God escapes her. But the sinner is taken by her. So surrounded by every persuasive and appealing thing you can imagine, Solomon says that wisdom will serve you well as a discernment tool. God gives us discernment in times of temptation. So Solomon doesn't stay pessimistic, though. He gives us the light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak. He says um, he shows us that the good news is the one that pleases God, the giver of boundless wisdom. Wisdom escapes these snares. 27 through 29. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher. And he says he's found a lot. While adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I have found, but a woman of all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought many schemes. So what is he saying with this? Adding it all together, putting it all in a row, the grand scheme of things of, of it is this. I cannot make it on my own. I cannot grasp God-given wisdom alone. I can't figure it out. I cannot make sense of it. And it's extremely hard to find this rare wisdom today. Solomon uses a bit of hyperbole or embellishment here using this illustration to here to make the point. Just one man I have found and no women I have found. He's not bashing women here. He's just taking a second to show you how detailed he's looked and how much he did not find it. The final verse, God made man upright but he has sought out many schemes as a summary verse, reminding us of the same reality of Romans 3.23, which is what? All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. So in that sense, we are culpable for evil. We are guilty of the transgressions against God. The agency of sin always rests squarely on my shoulders, human shoulders. When God made us, he pronounced us what? Very good. We are the ones who made the mess of these things. So this morning, in conclusion, as we draw to a close, the teacher's message is this. Since we can't make sense of this paradoxical world, we should entrust ourselves to a holy and sovereign God. We should not try to prolong life by trying to be super righteous, following all the prescribed list of rules and traditions that are made by man. Nor should we throw caution to the wind and give up on the Christian life by choosing to do wickedness. Today, the same message applies to us. Do not claim yourself to be too righteous. Jesus said this, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. It is impossible to be so righteous that God will simply grant us long life and happiness. You can't attain that perfection But by believing in Jesus Christ, we can be clothed with his righteousness. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, God is the source 
of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And Christ promises to give not only uh, he doesn't promise to give us long life, but he promises to give us eternal life. And he said this, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never, never perish. So, my friend, don't claim to be righteous when you cannot be. And do not give yourself over to wickedness. Rather, hear Jesus' voice and follow him and you will receive eternal life. You will be able to say, much like Horatio Spafford said this morning that I read the illustration, when peace like a river attendeth my way, Or when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever the lot, thou hast taught me to say, even so, it is well with my soul. Let us pray. Father God, we are so thankful this morning for your word and that we have opportunity to break it open, sing your praises, worship your name. But not only that, Father, that we can learn from your word and it can hide it in our hearts. Father, we pray that it does just that. We pray that as we have come today, that it will not just be a short minute of songs and a short message and that that will be the focus of our Sunday and we go through the rest of the week and forget about you. But Father, we pray that we are able to and give us the strength to hide it in our hearts. Use it throughout the week and the many up times and the many down times that we have and approach life with a balance as Solomon illustrated for us this morning. Father, if there are any here that do not have you as their personal God and Savior, I pray that they will make that correct today, that they will come and invite Christ into their life, trust him fully and serve him gladly. Father, we just thank you so much for this day and we pray your blessings upon it, in Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, we'll go ahead and sing our invitation.